Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Shalini Rao, the Director of Growth Equity at Generation Investment Management. Generation was founded back in 2004 by Al Gore and David Blood under the belief that fully integrating sustainability into their investment strategy would help to deliver long-term value to investors. They've since grown to have over $30 billion in assets under management, which they invest in both public and private equity strategies. The growth equity team recently closed their third sustainable solutions fund in 2019 with over $1 billion in committed capital, which they invest into three broad impact areas, planetary health, people health, and financial inclusion. During the conversation, Shalini and I talk about the importance of fully integrating sustainability into the entire investment process and how Generation uses investment roadmaps to identify systems positive outcomes in these areas and then work back from those desired outcomes to identify viable investment opportunities. Let's jump into the conversation. Shalini, welcome to Money and Meaning. Thank you very much. A true pleasure, Alex. It's great to have you here. Um, For listeners who maybe don't know about Generation Investment Management, could you provide a bit of an overview of the organization? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So Generation is a dedicated sustainable investment firm, is is what we call ourselves. been dedicated to sustainability from its very inception over 17 years or so ago. Sustainability sort of being the core of its investment process. If you think about the broader investment context, We believe that integrating key sustainability considerations alongside fundamental financial analysis is really what delivers the best investment insights and ultimately performance. So it's this belief that you never need to sacrifice value for values, but that they're fundamentally the same thing with a sufficiently long-term time horizon. And so from the very beginning, we've definitely taken that position. And I think pretty core to generation is the fact that sustainability isn't just you know, a fund within the firm, but it's it's everything that the firm does, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned you've been around a long time, 17 years. Can you give us a, you know, walk us through the generation investment philosophy and, and if relevant, maybe how it's evolved over that time? Yeah, absolutely. So going back 17 years ago, we started in public equities. So launched our listed equity strategy in about 2005 timeframe. I moved into growth and private investments around 2008, so now into our second decade, dedicated to, to private and to growth, uh, that being the team that I work on specifically. Um, but think about Generation as having you know, over $30 billion in assets under management focused on equities. And I think within this context, on the public side, we've always thought about that being a focus on companies that will thrive in a system-positive, sustainable economy. And on the private side, that's, you know, our companies who we think will, in many respects, drive that system positive outcome. But probably the the best way to answer the latter part of your question uh, is to say that our investment philosophy around integrated sustainability in particular is probably the thing that hasn't changed at all in the terms of, you know, many offices, et cetera, but always um, pretty, you know, sacrosanct around that philosophy. And I think fundamentally we think you know, not just about what a company does. So is it a best-in-class company driving a system-positive business outcome through the products and services it sells? And is this defensible? How you know high is the business quality, et cetera? 
but also how a company operates. So what is its governance like? Is its growth sustainable? Will it be able to attract key talent? You know, I think we think a company's mission is ultimately upheld in its culture. And so we very much care about, you know, the, the what alongside the how. And I think, again, you know, those are the sorts of things that just haven't shifted at all. I think from a historical standpoint, you know, while not the first person in this sustainable investing space, I think Generation certainly helped help bring it into the mainstream. Um, what, what do you do at, at Generation? What's your role? Yeah, so I'm an investor on our growth equity team. We're a team okay. of about 12, 13 folks representing eight or so different nationalities, making minority investments out of our now third and largest fund, which is just north of a billion dollars. Wow. Um, yeah, in, in mission-driven companies, right? Like the same sort of principle as across the firm uh, more broadly. Focused specifically on three vectors, which you know is how we kind of think about our sustainability outcomes. So planetary, people, financial inclusion, and then we take a sort of industry level view and define what system positive outcomes look like across those three vectors. So what does a system positive food and agricultural system look like, mobility system, system positive healthcare industry, future of work look like? We're all broadly generalists. I've spent a lot of my time focused on this latter category, the future of work in, in particular within the broader remit of financial inclusion. And then you know, just considering all of the externalities, both positive and negative, and trying to mitigate those in our approach. You mentioned briefly there that you think about systems, positive outcomes, and I know you've talked about the, the use of investment roadmaps. Could you give an example of, of like what a systems positive outcome in future of work looks like and, and maybe how you would work backwards from that to inform an investment decision? You know, this is probably the area on the team where we have a lot of rigorous debate, and I think it helps having kind of that 17 year track record of debating what system positive outcomes look like. So, you know, within a future of work, I think we would define it as equitable, diverse, productive, perhaps, you know, temporally and geographically agnostic in certain instances. There is clarity and transparency and balance amongst a host of other things. And I think it's crucially about helping people who might otherwise, you know, somewhat be underserved by the incumbent system and thinking through what are the different commercial interventions that can help drive towards that system positive work output and, and what sort of outcome. And I think, you know, in defining what that perspective looks like, we then define what the different levers are. And that's kind of, you know, if you think about what our roadmaps truly are, it's like an identification of those commercial innovations that are levers mm-hmm. towards these outcomes. So in the past year or two, you know, we've done roadmaps on the future of compensation. How do we think through what that ought to look like to help resolve some of these problems more broadly in in terms of inequality within the workforce? You know, diversity software and HR software, particularly focused on diversity. We've looked at things like time tracking and shift scheduling for shift workers, upskilling and reskilling, all sort of really focused on identifying the sort of commercial theme and and then a group of competitors and then trying to think through, you know, where value will accrue within each of those different themes um, defined by our deep research on what those themes actually entail, but then also fundamentally a lot of these outcomes related to, you know, what a positive future within those respective spaces looks like. So happy to provide an example there as well. Yeah, that would be great. So you're so you're starting with the 
problem, basically, and then trying to find investments that are working to solve it. You're not finding good investments and then kind of figuring out what problems they're solving. Exactly. I, I think that's a really good way of putting it. You know, I think one thing that you see is kind of a, a bit of arbitrariness sometimes in impact assessments. And that's exactly the, mm-hmm. the sort of thing that we're trying to avoid. It's first identifying the problem and then really focusing our energy on, on how you address some of the solutions. So perhaps to make this a bit less nebulous, let me walk you through um, a roadmap that we did specifically on retirement savings in the U.S. Um, and our investment in guideline was kind of the output of that. But at a, at a broader you know, inequality level, we are pretty concerned by the retirement savings gap and the fact that we're about to have a generation of baby boomers retire who don't have a social safety net nor the infrastructure to really support the, the fact that this aging population is going to be reliant on a social safety net that's just not there. And saving rates and retirement pots are just far too low to also support this. So we did a roadmap that you know looked into what is the problem? Where is this problem most sort of poignant? How do we really sort of um, look at the various commercial innovations that are trying to address this problem? But then think about not only the sort of sustainability outcomes, which if you if you could see my hands now, Alex, you'd see that I was doing a really <laughs> lovely hand diagram. But if you think about <laughs> the y-axis, it's kind of like the impact bang for your buck. So how much of our system positive outcomes are we able to achieve? And then the x-axis is really about you know, where are you actually going to have a, a business model that is really financially sustainable with high moats and really able to sort of cater to the underserved population. And I think in digging into the problem, we identified that actually one of the the biggest underserved populations within this retirement problem are small businesses. So within the small business segment, you have fewer than 10% of small businesses who actually have a retirement provided plan through your employer, which is really very low. So, you know, if SMBs were able to offer more retirement savings to their employees, you'd therefore be able to to resolve a lot of this gap. And if you think about the fact that there are 5.9 million small businesses in the US and it's like mm-hmm. 90% of employees, et cetera, then this really adds up over time. And then I think, you know, we look at tech innovation and which sort of innovations are actually happening in the market and why now, if at all, or should we wait? And we think that this market innovation might catch up and in this instance, you know, we felt that the fact that you now had the ability to, you know, in guidelines case, build the record keeper or a lot of the manual processes in-house meant that you were able to lower costs to serve. And we think value will accrue where you have low cost to a lot of these small business owners, where you have a lot of simplicity and transparency, frankly, around the pricing model. And so in thinking about where value will accrue and thinking about the underserved definition of of what sort of demographic you're focused on, I think we really then are able to identify and aggregate up, you know, where are we going to have, again, the biggest impact in terms of scalability of the business, but then also fundamentally the biggest impact in terms of, you know, the core issues we're trying to resolve in the first place. You mentioned it a little bit towards the end, but what exactly does Guideline do to, to solve that problem? Yeah, so Guideline is a small business focused 401k provider that leverages a SaaS-based pricing model to really just try to deliver a service to small businesses. It helps educate the market. And so it's a pretty efficient way, an effective way of trying to solve this gap. Got it. So they're trying to bring down the cost for small businesses to provide this retirement benefit to their employees. Yeah, and costs are huge, right? I mean, if you think about like, 
big players in the world, like the Charles Schwab's, like the fantastic businesses, just sort of, you know, their ability to be fit for purpose for small businesses who really want to sort of, you know, only have the ability to pay sort of lower rates is, you know, there's that sort of mismatch. So I think there is something to be said about having a, a fairly bespoke product to cater to this, this end demographic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how did you get into this work? What led you to, to Generation? Huh. Yeah, it's been a it's been a wild ride in some respects. I really knew that I wanted to do something in social justice and sustainability, and those were the issues that I knew I wanted to devote my career to. Something probably ingrained in myself and my sister through our upbringing and our, our personal context. But my sister and I were both first generation university students, and so much of the end goal was like getting into and doing well at university. And, you know, at least for myself, I didn't have much clarity about what to do after. And sort of knew that I wanted to optimize for three things, like, you know, having a positive impact in the world, being challenged intellectually and doing something that's interesting. And then, you know, ultimately financial security for for me and my family. And I dabbled with a couple of options, including law, but I'll spare you that saga, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) And I spent the majority of the past decade in sustainable finance. So did a master's degree in finance to better understand the technical and theoretical basis for what I was doing, but really wanted to identify a firm that didn't think about finance as siloed from sustainability, which is quite a luxury, I think, where that's kind of still the majority of the market. And I think generation is pretty unique. Um, and I've been with the firm since early 2015, which if you think about it, is a, it was a pretty interesting year to join the firm. I just finished a pretty interesting book called Unsustainable Inequalities by a a French economist called Lucas Chancel. And it reminded me that 2015 was the year that the Sustainable Development Goals were introduced. And I think, you know, the SDGs, as you'll know better than anyone, were novel for two reasons, right? First, they brought together the environment, the economy and social policy domains that had otherwise been pretty disconnected for the previous many decades. Mm -hmm. And then second, they were universal in scope. So applied to countries, small, large, industrialized, developing and everything in between. And I think you have been a huge catalyst in the momentum that you've seen since 2015. So also really cool to have been part of that ride at Generation since then. And pretty amazing that I was able to join a firm where they were already approaching the full remit of sustainability in, in this way. Absolutely. It's been a exciting 70 years in the space for a, a variety of reasons, which we'll get into, I, I think, a little bit more. I mean, the, the, the past year, the pandemic has reshaped the way people think about at least two of the three impact areas that, that you highlighted at the beginning and, and people health and, and financial inclusion. How has it changed the way that, that you're looking at those two impact areas and, and thinking about roadmaps and, and investment strategies and such to make sure that the recovery leads to a a more equitable future. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as the pandemic hit and as a way to really help our portfolio, right away, we try to convene resources. So we do these fairly regular um, roundtables or summits. And this one was obviously our first stab at a, a remote version of that. But we brought together 10 or so commercial innovators across the space. So, so businesses that are really focused on trying to cater to small businesses and, and all together in the room, there were, you know, 300,000 small businesses represented. And we talked through, you know, how are you guys thinking about helping your small businesses access PPP loans and what other resources are available and how do we share those resources and how do we think about just information and, and communication? And so I think 
you know, we also consider ourselves pretty key players in the ecosystem. There's a bit of the investment world, which in some respects, and you hear this from entrepreneurs sometimes, it's, you know, investors can be leeches. We are mere rental actors in their creation of value. And so I think we also think of it as incumbent on us to help drive value and add value to the companies in which we invest. All to say, you know, it's been a pretty remarkable 18 months for, for everyone in so many respects. And it's been incredible to see our companies grow. And you've also seen a lot of strong growth come out of our companies focused on small business. And we think that's a, also a testament to their ability to help this, this end market. Yeah, I mean, another area that's been hit particularly hard over the past year, 18 months, is the the restaurant industry, which you know I know you've published on its importance to the economy, to, to GDP, to employment. How are you evaluating opportunities in that space? And, and what would you consider a, a system's positive outcome for the restaurant industry emerging from this pandemic? I mean, alongside some of our portfolio companies like Gusto and Guideline, who cater to small businesses and who were at that roundtable back you know, last April, we also had Toast in the room. Um, Toast is a POS provider and software solutions for restaurants and for sort of small and, and medium-sized restaurants. And so we've been able to track the impact of COVID on the restaurant industry very much firsthand. And it's you know, been incredible how, if you think about the restaurant industry, I mean, it's an industry known for its entrepreneurialism. And if we saw anything throughout COVID, it was that exactly. And I think we think the importance of the restaurant industry to a viable economy is pretty significant, right? I mean, you have the highest degree of diverse demographic mobility in any industry coming in the restaurant industry, but a strong really strong correlation between women entering the workforce and the restaurant industry. And then you also have the ability of new innovations and digitization to help solve for a massive commercial food waste issue, which is a huge emitter to to greenhouse gases. And so I think what we've seen is a lot of resiliency and a lot of innovation and a lot of business model pivots made viable through, in many respects, the entrepreneurialism and also the digitization of this industry. And I think it will mean that hopefully what is created in the future, you know, and and what we have seen being built back will be built back better uh, and in a sort of sustainable uh, construct. Yeah. And it's an industry that has notoriously small profit margin. So I imagine even some of those small, you know, technology improvements can, can make a big difference. I've started seeing toast everywhere recently after having never heard of it. So hopefully that means your investment is is doing well. Another one of the the funds investments was into Asana, a project management software that that at least for me doesn't immediately make me think like social enterprise. Can you explain how Asana fits into your your investment philosophy or or theory of change? Yeah, totally. I'm glad you asked, Alex. Let's go back to our system positive definition of of the future of work. And this wasn't sort of a convenient definition. I think we genuinely believe that this is what, you know, a more sustainable future of work looks like, right? So again, I think what I said was something along the lines of equitable, productive, diverse, oftentimes temporally and geographically agnostic to actually allow for a lot of those other things to exist, right? So how do you think about flexibility in the workplace, but also how do you think about clarity and transparency and and balance And Asana actually came out of a roadmap that we did on remote collaboration 
So we spent we spent a lot of time and a lot of resources allocated towards you know system positive mobility and transportation systems. Where investors in Proterra, the electric bus company based in the U.S., and investors in Gogoro, the electric scooter company based in Taiwan, and you know we have a lot of theses around how we innovate the mobility industry. And I think one of those theses is also you know how can we disintermediate in many cases the need to travel altogether. And as we've seen through at least some of the emissions outputs from this past year, remote work can actually be really positive for certain things, including fundamentally the environment. And so we identified Asana through that piece of work. It was constantly and consistently named as one of the top tools needed by remote workers. It's really loved by the knowledge workers who use it because of the clarity and transparency that it brings to them to sort of get rid of work about work. And so that's the what that the that the really achieves. And then there's the how. And right? I mean, I think Asana is pretty best in class in terms of its culture and being consistently one of the best places to, to work and all of these companies and certifications that sort of give those types of, of awards. And so we think that there's a ton of alignment there. And again, I think you know, if, if over 80% of our portfolio is identified through roadmaps and roadmaps are being driven by trying to address those needs, then even though it, it might not be the most intuitive, as you perhaps said, those levers really point to uh, the potential impact and, and the potential to do good. You know, you're investing in, in later stage private equity companies. And so I guess they're already fairly big, but I imagine it becomes more complicated when you're talking about the number of employees and the supply chain and, and some of the other factors with, with publicly traded companies. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's like this continuum of capital that we're able to mm-hmm. provide means that the differences don't have to be that manifest. And because we work so collaboratively together, it's about the best performers from from our fund graduating into the the public side, and then we also have a what we what we dubbed our long term equity strategy. So if for whatever reason companies want to stay private for longer and don't you know it, the public markets might not be the best place for them, then we also have the ability to invest over the long term on the private side. Slightly different from the growth equity strategy that I'm focused on, uh, but definitely again about this sort of continuum of of capital to really help support our entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You've mentioned that Generation is a long-term investor, but still an investment necessitates some sort of like exit opportunity, right? So how do you think about that with regard to the long-term private equity strategy? Yeah, I mean, our fiduciary responsibility is definitely to our, you know, our LPs, our clients, and these are pension funds in most cases, right? And so we're very aligned with trying to get them the strongest outcomes possible, and I think in many cases, you know, our long-term orientation, again, aligns itself well with our ability to hold things both publicly and, and privately for very much the long term. And then I think, you know, we are, at the end of the day, we are investors. And so we have that mandate. But I don't think those two things necessarily need to, to be at odds. I think you can make money and definitely support companies for, for the very long term while doing that. Impact funds and the public markets have had a really successful year with the vast majority outperforming non-impact funds and, and benchmarks. In the private market side, what, what are you seeing in terms of the performance of social enterprises as opposed to their, their kind of non-impact peers? There are increasingly mission-driven companies who are coming to the fore. We think that particularly in the private side, the commercial opportunity 
around sustainability is increasing, perhaps correlated with the demand and the need, frankly, to accelerate a lot of these sustainability levers due to, you know, the urgency of, of climate change, et cetera. And this commercial innovation is also something we've been tracking for a very long time. We do an annual sustainability trends report, which we use to track a lot of these commercial innovations and, and their uptick. And, you know, oftentimes people have thought about sustainability just as risk mitigation instead of as like massive opportunity to invest behind. So we're definitely keen and, and eager and happy to see a lot of social enterprises entering the, the market. I think where you kind of have at least some of the market mismatch is, you know, just market dynamics currently and trying to find the companies who don't feel sort of pressured by the market dynamics and are very aligned on on the what and the how. And, you know, I don't think we are wanting for a, a good discussion with, with people at the other end of the table. And so I, I would also suggest and urge companies to ask more of their investors, for sure, to ask for more value to be added, to ask for more alignment, to push investors as well, because I actually think in many respects, it's it's companies that are leading a lot of the way in, in terms of sustainability. Yeah. You know, in the in the past seven years that that you've been there, we've been witness certainly to a pretty incredible rate of adoption of of sustainable investing practices. And you know, you just mentioned the the shift in thinking about it from like risk mitigation to to alpha opportunity. We've seen tons of new entrants to the field, uh, mostly for better, some some maybe for for the worse. But um what do you see happening? in the field of sustainable investing over the the next seven years? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of what you're alluding to is the fact that people are arriving to the party and that's great, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not a fun party to be partying by yourself. Uh, <laughs> I think like, you know, we've got over 17 years of experience doing this um, and our, our performance track record in doing this. And so I guess we would say we're always very, very happy to help. And we spend a lot of our time actually, you know, you know again, on ecosystem development and talking to co-investors. I guess I, the the caution I would have is that, again, this isn't a fund for a generation. This is everything that we are like fundamentally and intrinsically captured by is sustainability and everything that we're focused on. And within our firm, we don't have ESG analysts, you know, the same analysts who are building the models and sort of debating some of the financial levers are those who are sitting around the table making those same debates around sustainability externalities and key levers to really move the dial. And I think you need that integration for sure to really sort of treat sustainability with the rigor that it ought to be and to help solve some of these gaps that you see in the in the market more broadly and and to really sort of move the dial on how to make capital markets more sustainable generally. Um, and you know that's why I got into investing and think it's so interesting. Could have done a host of other things, you know, and I always thought I was going to work for a nonprofit and you know before obviously we talked about law. That's what makes capital markets so interesting is really this kind of, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity and that substantial need. And so I, I think it's awesome that sustainability is, you know, in many ways beginning to take root. I just think that we need to be incredibly rigorous about how we uphold it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is there anything that, that I haven't asked you that you'd like to mention before we, we sign off here? Yeah, I guess I would, again, just sort of reemphasize this idea that the commercial opportunity in sustainability is huge. And so... You know, I think it's exciting that you're seeing more firms being started up in a way that is 
galvanized by the desire to do something good in the world. So you're seeing a lot of companies that are increasingly mission driven and focused on making real change instead of, you know, I've got, I've got nothing against companies focused on like creating new games. It's just not kind of what gets me up in the morning. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> there are lots of issues to solve and probably not enough capital perhaps flowing to some of these issues, but that's what we're here for. <laughs> and we're keen to seize those opportunities. And I think, you know, really trying to think about like how we, again, galvanize that sort of sustainability innovation, both on the commercial side and then, then on the investor side is something that is is pretty unique and a, an interesting opportunity. So it's so very keen to to help the markets move towards that. Well, Shalini, thank you so much for for taking the time to to talk to me today and, and for all the great work you're doing at Generation and, and with the Sustainable Solutions Fund. Absolute pleasure, Alex. And thank you for all of the great work you guys are doing at SoCap as well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Shalini Rao of Generation Investment Management. If you want to learn more about the work that Shalini and the Generation team are doing, check out our website at socapglobal.com. And as always, give the show a good rating, review, share it with a friend, uh, all that good stuff. And we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.